Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. In New York, I'm John Fastman. And in London, I'm Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Few places offer a clearer illustration of the tragedy of the commons than the high seas, the two-thirds of the world's oceans beyond national jurisdictions. A new UN-brokered treaty to safeguard international waters aims to change that. And what started as a storyline in Japanese comics in the 1990s went on to become a live-action hit in Thailand, one that's now an obsession back in Japan with hopes of becoming as big as Korean pop. And it's all about young men who love young men. But first... Over the weekend, Turkey's long-standing president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, announced the date of the presidential election, May 14th. For two decades, first as prime minister and since 2014 as president, Mr. Erdogan and his Justice and Development, or AK party, have led the country. Over that time, his leadership has become ever more autocratic. Political freedoms have been curtailed, the media gagged. But this election presents a rare opportunity for change in a country that's been devastated by soaring inflation and then, last month, by deadly earthquakes. These competing disasters have exposed the fault lines in Turkish politics. And, sensing opportunity, six disparate opposition parties have banded together. That table of six has at last rallied around a candidate. In the two months until the election, it'll be a question of how well the opposition's man campaigns and just how much Mr. Erdogan wants to keep his post. With fewer than 65 days before Turkey's presidential and parliamentary elections, Kemal Kiricdaroglu, the head of the opposition Republican People's Party, or CHP, has emerged as the challenger to Recep Tayyip Erdogan, Turkey's president. Piotr Zalewski is our Turkey correspondent. On March 6th, he was chosen by a group of six opposition party leaders, of which he was one, as their presidential candidate. But his ascension to the candidacy has been challenging, to say the least. 
And that may impact his chances and perhaps the entire opposition's at the ballot box. So why is that? What is it about the nomination process that has proved problematic? For some time now, Mr. Kilistarolu's nomination was expected to be a formality. But all of a sudden, it became something out of a Turkish TV drama. On March 3rd, a day after opposition leaders confirmed that they had settled on a joint candidate, presumably Mr. Kilistarolu himself, one of them, one of the members of the Table of Six, suddenly walked away. And this was Meral Akshener, the head of the right-wing E, or Good Party, who said that she refused to back Kemal Kilistarolu, said that the opposition or the Table of Six had lost its capacity to lead, and called on Ekrem Imamolu and Mansur Yavash, the CHP mayors of Istanbul and Ankara, respectively, to run instead of Mr. Kılıçdaroğlu. Tıpkı yıllardır Türk milletine yapıldığı gibi, ölüm ve sıtma arasında bir tercihe zorlanmıştır. Ve elbette buna boyun eğmeyecektir. She also added that choosing between Turkey's current president, Mr. Erdogan, and Mr. Kilistarolu was like choosing between death and malaria. She caved in, but only at the 11th hour, agreeing to back Mr. Kilistarolu after he promised to appoint the two mayors, Mr. Imamolu and Mr. Yavash, as his vice presidents. So who is Mr. Kilistarolu and, and why does Ms. Akshener have a problem with him? For an opposition that wants to calm tensions in Turkish politics, for an opposition that wants to dismantle the executive presidency and the kind of authoritarian system that Mr. Erdogan has built over the years, someone like Mr. Kilistarolu might be the best possible president because he is, in a way, the anti-Erdogan. He is a bookish former bureaucrat in his 70s and rather unassuming, grandfatherly, one can say. And many think that his manner, his personality could be something of an antidote for Erdogan's political style, cooling down tensions at home and abroad. But the problem with him might be, or so polls over the past year suggested, that he might be unelectable. And the reason why Ms. Akshener wanted Mr. Imamolu and Mr. Yavash to run for the presidency is that both of them, according to polls over the past year at least, seem to stand a much better chance of unseating Mr. Erdogan. And presumably that opposition coming from within the table of six has not helped the chances of Mr. Kilic Durolu. Well, it's hard to say, but it's certainly not helped her own chances. That is to say, Meral Akshener's own chances and the chances of her party. Those comments, the manner in which she came out against Kilic Tarolu's candidacy before eventually endorsing it, and the timing, this was three days before the announcement was supposed to be made, have damaged her own standing with voters, but also have damaged the opposition's collective image. Her walkout reminded many Turks of the 1990s when squabbling politicians brought down one coalition government after another. And Mr. Erdogan will be very happy to remind voters of this over the coming two months. And how are things looking for Mr. Erdogan? How popular is he? Over the past few months, slowing growth combined with extremely high inflation, 55% last month, 
have nibbled away at support for Turkey's leader and his governing coalition. His government has also come under fire over its slow response to the earthquakes that killed over 50,000 people in southern Turkey and Syria last month. Anger has also mounted after Turkey's Red Crescent was revealed to have sold thousands of tents to a charity instead of distributing them for free. And so Mr. Kilistarolu seems to have seized the momentum, despite the drama. One poll gave him a double-digit lead over Mr. Erdogan. Another more recent poll gives him a margin of up to eight points, which is quite sizable, but obviously when it comes to someone like Mr. Erdogan, not insurmountable. What do you mean by that? Why, why isn't that as clear-cut as it might sound? It's hard to write off someone like Erdogan. He has quite the track record. He has been in power for 20 years. He has won 10 parliamentary and local elections, two presidential elections, and three referendums, and lost none. And he has done so by taking over independent institutions and the media, but also through ruthless pragmatism, force of personality, and superb political instincts. He is weakened and he faces arguably the toughest election of his long career, but he still enjoys the support of his base. He controls the purse strings, which is to say he might try to spend his way to victory. He also controls much of the media, the courts, and the central bank. And so the opposition to sustain its momentum will have to present a united front. Obviously, Ms. Akshiner's walkout and her return to the table of six suggests that uh, there are deep fractures within the opposition and the opposition will need to keep those in check, at least until the elections. But what you describe is a situation in which Mr. Erdogan may have the country's institutions just tied up. Is there any poll lead, any opposition performance that can stop him? Look, I think it's largely a question of what this thing is. And by thing, I mean the system over which Erdogan presides. I mean, is this a government that can afford to lose power, to be voted out? Or is this a regime that will stop at nothing to remain in power? And frankly, no one has a convincing answer to this. Interestingly, analysts abroad will say that Erdogan simply cannot afford to lose. Losing is not an option, and he will do whatever it takes to win. But the majority view in Turkey is that this country's democracy is resilient enough and that the opposition does have a high chance of winning this election because Erdogan might be trying, might be capable of doing whatever it takes, but there's only so much he can do. Piotr, thank you very much for joining us. And thank you for having me. Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. If you own or operate a business... Whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. 
What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. At an average depth of around 3,500 meters and covering nearly three-quarters of the planet, the oceans provide the world's largest habitat for life. This water world regulates our weather systems and temperature, sucking down about a quarter of our annual carbon dioxide emissions. It also provides food, shipping lanes, and tourism, in all about $2.5 trillion in economic output. And last week, negotiators at the United Nations sought to protect these valuable waters and agreed to the first international treaty regulating the high seas, those areas beyond 200 nautical miles of the coast and therefore outside the control of governments. But it comes late. The high seas have been exploited at huge cost to species and ecosystems found there. Two-thirds of the fish stocks in the high seas are now overexploited. The oceans are also very vulnerable to the effects of climate change and to pollution, both of which mess up the ecosystems there and threaten the delicate food webs. Rachel Dobbs writes about climate for The Economist. There are now some huge areas known as dead zones, which are devoid of oxygen. Those areas have increased since 1950 by about four times which is partly due to human activity. And then there are areas where the seafloor is being mined for minerals and oil extraction in certain places in ways that has knock-on environmental effects. But because these areas are outside of any one country's governance, it has always been very, very difficult to put mechanisms in place to stop things like this happening until now. And so what has happened to improve that governance now? So up until now, while there's been very long-running attempts to try and reach international agreement on some of these issues, there hasn't been any kind of mechanism in place, which means that to date, only very small pockets of the high seas have been protected. But what has happened now is finally, after literally decades of negotiations and then a very long-running negotiation in New York over the last couple of weeks, the countries at the United Nations have finally agreed to make the first international treaty which protects the high seas specifically. The ship has reached the shore. This treaty is 20 years in the making and it establishes for the first time a legally binding framework to allow areas in the high seas to be protected. And so once the treaty enters into force, the way that that will work is that signatory countries can decide that an area should be protected and they then will propose measures that should be taken. And those proposals will then be reviewed by academics and scientists and businesses and then will be voted on again by the other UN members who are signatories to the treaty. And if everyone agrees, then that will become a protected area. And so how will that protection be enforced? So this is still quite complicated and it's something that really needs to be hammered out. One of the ways that it's meant to happen under the new treaty is that all the countries that are signatories to the treaty are 
part of other global organizations. So like the International Maritime Organization or there are various regional fishing bodies. They are meant to sort of use their positions in those bodies to try and make sure that these rules are abided by. How exactly this is going to be enforced, how exactly things are going to be monitored to make sure that rules are not being violated, all of that stuff still needs to be worked out and is going to be a very complicated problem. And is that the limit of the treaty? Does it do anything else? So the marine protected areas aspect, which is very, very important, is actually only one of the four things that this treaty is meant to cover. One of the other ones is about environmental impact assessment, which means that countries who have signed up will have to conduct proper assessments of any activity that they want to do that might be damaging. So that could be fishing, it could be deep sea mining and means that hopefully none of these activities will be taken without people being able to A, know what impacts they're going to have and then B, work out measures to mitigate them. There's also a very strong line on capacity building and technology sharing. And then the last part of the treaty establishes new expectations for dealing with marine genetic resources, which is actually the thorn in the side of these kind of negotiations and is actually the reason that the meeting last year ended up running out of time and they didn't reach a conclusion and it got pushed into this year. Tell us about those. What are marine genetic resources? So marine genetic resources are very broadly any materials from plants or animals found at sea. And these are used incredibly widely in pharmaceuticals, in cosmetics, in engineering, in other industries. Since the 1950s, more than 30,000 compounds have been discovered, and these can have huge commercial value. So it can be a compound which is useful in a cancer medicine or some of the COVID antiviral drugs. One of the important compounds within that came from marine life. Normally, these kind of products, if they're found within countries or within the coastal regions, they are owned by that country, which means that there's monetary benefits that come from that flow to that country. But until now, the ones found in areas beyond national jurisdiction were finders keepers. They were up for grabs, which meant in practice that the monetary benefits of those went to the countries that could afford the scientific research and just trawling around for them. So the new treaty stipulates that the monetary and commercial benefits from these should be shared fairly and equitably, and that a special fund will be created for this purpose. So that in itself is a real breakthrough and it's the thing that allowed this agreement to be reached. But the details of this are something that really has to be worked out. So exactly what the splits will be, the rate in which countries pay in, all of those kind of details still have to be hammered out. And so, Rachel, what happens next? This is the start of a very long road. The text that they've got now has to go through a technical edit, has to go back before the UN to be approved and then it has to go up for ratification which means that countries actually have to sign up to this which is not the same as saying i agree that this treaty can be created it's saying i agree to abide by the terms of this treaty and a certain number of countries have to do that for the treaty to even come into effect at all i think for this one it's 60 and that process can take a very very long time there is a really long way to go and there's going to be a lot of campaigning and horse trading and trying to work around that so Overall, this is a really, really good step in the right direction, but a lot more needs to be done. All right, Rachel, thanks so much for your time today. Thanks, John.
Together the series, with the numeral two, is a saccharine television drama from Thailand in which two boys fall in love at university. It involves lots of kissing scenes and the usual lover's spats. The show and its cast are stealing hearts, making countless viewers swoon across Asia and beyond. And it's not the only show of its kind to be doing so. Together is probably one of the most famous shows belonging to this genre known as Thai Boys Love, or Y Series, as people in Thailand call it. Moika Iida writes about Japan for The Economist. Boys Love is a type of male-male homoerotic drama, and it first originated in Japan as a relatively niche genre among female geeks, and it became popular in the 1990s. So again, these stories are about gay romance, but interestingly, the key audiences have always been straight women. And in recent years, Thai TV production companies like GMMTV adapted this relatively niche manga genre to live-action TV series starring good-looking actors and targeting mainstream audiences. And so now these shows are as popular outside Thailand as they used to be inside Thailand? Yes, it's really big in certain places in Asia. So, for instance, Japan, where I'm based, is a big market. And I've met a lot of Japanese female fans. I've met Japanese women who are now studying the Thai language or are considering visiting Thailand for the first time in their lives because of Thai BL. And there's also this hashtag called Thai Numa in Japanese. It means Thai Swamp, which is a reference to the show's addictiveness. You fall into a swamp, you're not able to get out. It's a popular hashtag on social media. So the Thai government really acknowledges the potential of Thai BL as a way to bring in tourists. And it's now promoting BL dramas at international trade shows. In June 2021, the BL industry secured over $10 million in foreign investment. So the Thai government and Thai producers are now hoping Thai BL will become as big as something like K-pop or replace the South Korean culture wave. I mean, that's a big ask, isn't it, to be as big as K-pop? Well, these Thai producers were very much inspired by K-pop or South Korean boy bands like BTS. This trend might look rather random, but when you think about its proximity to K-pop, it starts to make a lot more sense. So even just on a superficial or aesthetic level, these TV shows feature these delicately featured young men who might look rather androgynous or effeminate in the eyes of Western viewers, but that's quite similar to Korean boy bands. And in terms of the business model, the Thai producers have also been inspired by K-pop, including the heavy use of fan services like hosting meet and greet events as a way to boost revenue. So one Thai academic I spoke to said, Thai BL is sort of like a melting pot that mixes the Japanese ingredient and the Korean ingredient. And so what do you think about the prospects of of reaching the the heady heights of of K-pop fame? It's very hard to tell at this point. When I talk to hardcore fans, they believe or hope it would become as big as K-pop. Honestly, I might have my doubts about that. And also it's worth noting that the situation is quite different from South Korea. The South Korean government is 
pouring tons of money into K-pop and the popular culture industry as an official policy. But when the Thai government endorses BL, it's limited to mentioning it at international events. It's not like it's providing subsidies or making huge financial investments. But I think it's quite interesting how Thai BL has started to appeal to a broader audience, so not just heterosexual straight women. Um, It's starting to attract more fans from the queer community as well. A recent survey showed that more than 20% of fans in Thailand identify as homosexual. That might partly be thanks to a growing number of storylines about the discrimination LGBT people face in Thailand. And what does that entail? What discrimination is there at home? So foreigners tend to stereotype Bangkok or Thailand as some kind of gay utopia, but when you talk to locals, they really push back on that idea. For instance, same-sex marriage isn't allowed. So the popularity of these series puts the Thai government in a slightly awkward position. The government acknowledges the economic potential of Thai BL, but when it mentions Thai BL at international trade shows, it tends to downplay the homosexual aspect. And there's also some worrying precedents as well. So back in 2007, the Thai government briefly banned BL comics under obscenity laws. It removed these comic books from bookstores. So production companies will be wary of provoking another backlash. So that means the future of Thai BL looks promising, but it also remains quite uncertain. Moeka, thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show. You can get in touch at podcasts at economist.com. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.